Welcome to the Mental Health Monthly Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dwight Norman Jr., a clinical psychologist licensed to practice in the state of California. Once a month, I will provide stimulating conversation surrounding mental health diagnosis, treatment, and resources with the interview structure that will provide solid information from a variety of career professionals from different fields. We will also talk about the psychological aspects within those disciplines. Thank you for joining us and enjoy. Hello, Dr. Sanchez. Thank you for joining the Mental Health Monthly Podcast. How are you? Hi, Dr. Norman. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. I want to jump right in here and ask you all these wonderful questions so that you can bless our audience with their uh, brilliance. (laughs) Thank you. So uh, tell us a little bit about what you do in the career field that you're in. I am a licensed clinical psychologist here in California. I work for Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health. But one of the great things about being a psychologist is like, I don't think I know any psychologists who just do one thing. <laughs> We're all kind mm-hmm. of in a lot of other different areas. So I was a professor at a university and an administrator for a long time. And then I switched over and now I'm doing more coaching, mentoring. Um, I do do some therapy on the side, just, you know, a few clients here and there, private practice and i am studying to become a qualified medical examiner so i'll be able to start doing some assessments for work workman's compensation soon so wow. hopefully so yeah a little of this little of that that's but interesting mostly, you, so you have a wide span of experience levels there it sounds like um, yes teaching uh private practice uh, assessments mm-hmm. a whole the whole kit and caboodle there yes i've done a little bit of everything. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit more about your experience as a professor and the, the teaching? Is it a different skill set than being a clinician? Sure. Um, I taught at both the community college level. So I would teach as I was a counselor, actually. I was an academic counselor there. So same type of skill set like empathy and, you know, being a good listener and guiding students, but mm-hmm. a little bit different because I was more focused on like the academics. But because I have that psychology background, I was always kind of what's blocking you from your academics. So I would still go a little deeper with a lot of my students I was counseling. And at that level, teaching um, the guidance course that I was teaching, it was a life skills career exploration class. So I was more preparing them for what to expect for college, teaching them the skills they needed to be successful in school, helping them to you know become more emotionally intelligent. So I still tied psychology into it a lot. Um, And then it was a little easier in the higher education area when I taught because I was teaching clinicians and future psychologists. So I was teaching like counseling skills courses and um, like theories classes and assessment, psych assessment, treatment courses, that that kind of stuff. So um, same skill set. And I would give a lot of personal experience and professional experience when I taught, that's just my style. And that was kind of how the university I taught at worked. We had a lot of, it was like a scholar practitioner model. So we really were teaching the students in a way of, you know, this is the skill set you're going to need. And this is how you're going to be able to translate it when you're working with clients. So we really forced the students, like if they were taking a couple's class, they were thinking and reflecting on their own relationships with their partners. If they were taking like a family psychology class, they were reflecting on like their family of origin. Um, so they almost were like using themselves as a client. And then we would use from that to teach 
and educate them. Um, so yeah, it, it is a little different skill set, but I still always found a way to like tie psychology because I feel like being reflective and looking inward is still so much a part of like being a student and critical thinking and um, just growing and learning and like being uncomfortable and like pushing past that. So I really tied that into a lot of that was really part of like my teaching philosophy nice. just to get comfortable being uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of what I teach with the individuals I, I treat for OCD is being oh, okay. uncomfortable or feeling more comfortable with the anxiety level so that yes. it goes down to where you're more comfortable with it. That That's that's interesting that you mentioned that. And, and so uh, the skill sets are, are related when you're talking about treating individuals like one-on-one or doing more clinical work in comparison to being a professor or a teacher now you you work for uh los angeles mental mental health or behavioral health agency? los angeles county department of mental health yeah dmh okay. and and so what 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 do you do there what is your experience like there so here i'm actually not doing a lot of clinical work i'm more of like a case manager i work for a special program called specialized foster care so I work with families that are involved with Department of Child Family Services, DCFS. Okay. Um, so a lot of the times, and we work specifically with the children. So it's once the child has been removed from their home and they're now in foster care or like placed with a family member or somebody intermediate, I mean, in, um, you know, while they're waiting to figure out where their placement's gonna be. Mm-hmm. I talk to the family and kind of do like a brief triage and just assess the child's functioning at the time. And almost always I'm telling them to go get therapy <laughs> because uh-huh. I'm like, everybody can benefit. Right. And so even when they're telling me, oh, they're fine. Like I'm not noticing any behavioral issues. There's no changes and they're eating or sleeping. Like everything's great. I still encourage them to at least get the child assessed and to try it because a lot of times we see the kids aren't comfortable telling the caregivers how they're really feeling or they're just so confused and overwhelmed and feel like me talking is what got me in the situation in the first place. So now I don't want to talk to anybody. Um, so it's really unfortunate. And I'm like, just being involved with the system can be traumatizing in itself for a lot of people. Like now you have a social worker coming to your house, asking you all these questions all the time, someone going to your school and pulling you out of class. So it's just, um, yeah, it's just sad to see that some people still, there still is like such a big stigma with mental health and people aren't open, yes. but I usually can at least encourage them to go for the assessment. And I kind of explain the process, answer any questions. And so then most people are open to trying it. And then 99% of the time, the kid meets medical necessity to continue getting services every week. So yeah, I'm really doing a lot of just brief triage and more like giving guidance to the foster family, like when the kid does have behavioral things and just giving psychoeducation and letting them know like this is normal and you know, this is kind of what happened to them. This is their history. And this is like the behaviors that you're seeing are a result of the trauma. It's not that the kid is trying to act out and like get on your nerves. So then when they're able to see it in that way, they're like, oh, they're able to find that empathy and then, okay, well, how do I help them when they do this? What's a better way to do, you know, to respond to that? Because this is what I'm doing and it's not working. So I'm doing more like parent coaching type stuff and psychoeducation. Uh, Before COVID, we were going out and I would do assessments, um, which was not very often because most of the time we could tell that the kid met necessity. And so we would just refer out. But there are times where we do go out and I'm physically in person with the client and the family or the, you know, foster family. 
doing the assessment to see what the diagnosis is and what the best um, level of care is to start with. Wow. Amazing, amazing work. And you're working specifically with foster children and, and, and families. So your work is 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 a, a need, a, success, a necessity mm-hmm. in the community for sure. And so what, what is your take on uh, therapy for everyone? You mentioned that you, you would recommend uh, for uh, your clients or patients to go get more long term, um, like individual care, I would imagine. And my, my take is I think everybody can benefit from going to talk to someone that's a professional and is unbiased and is mm-hmm. on the outside of their their inner inner circle or inner world to be able to assist them with whatever's going on. I mean, for example, you have like a physical illness, you have you go to a physician, right? So everyone has yes. a physician that they go to. And then my take exactly. is for your mental health, you should have someone that you go to as well. Uh, so so what, is, what is your take in that area? Do you feel like everyone should have a a therapist of some sort to be able to you know work out their mental health issues yes i totally agree i feel like everybody would benefit from therapy i know because of the stigma or because some people just feel like well i have my faith or i have my family or i have my you know pastor or priest or my partner like people feel like they have support already that they don't need a stranger to come in and tell them what to do so just providing like that background and that education and letting people know that, because actually this kind of goes back to a question I briefly touched on in the beginning. That is probably what makes it different from when I'm a professor, I give my opinions. Where as a therapist, a lot of people have the idea that I'm in there giving you advice and telling you what to do. And so when I'm encouraging someone who's maybe on the fence on deciding whether they should try therapy or not, I let them know like, that's what one of the big differences is, is that your friends and your family are giving you opinions and they're telling you what you should do. And so if you're not in a place where you can like advocate for yourself and you even really know what your feelings are and what their feelings are, it's hard to make a decision when you're getting all these other people that are influencing what you should do. Right. And you're already struggling with what you should do. So that's how I kind of like encourage it is that that's what's so beautiful about it is that you have this person that's here that is not judging you that is giving you the space to think and feel and you know just be you so that you can figure out on your own what the best answer is or what the you know correct path is for you and but yeah everybody has stuff and until we go and talk to someone and have that space that's when I think the stuff is able to come up. Yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. so to speak, to explain it in a simple way. Yes. But um, yeah, and a lot of times we just don't have that. In our day-to-day lives, we're so busy and we're running around. And yeah, you talk to someone in your life and they want to fix it. It's like, okay, well, stop feeling like that. Like if you do this, then stop doing it. If you, you know, But that's not helpful a lot right. of the time. Most times people just need to vent and process out loud and then figure out, okay, what do I need to do? What's the best solution for me right now? And I love that we get to guide them through that process without telling them what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I hear that all the time, especially dealing with, with anxiety. And one of my specialties is, is uh, ERP work. So I work with OCD quite a bit. 
Okay. And oftentimes I hear the members or patients that I work with uh, mm-hmm. say, like, I just want to stop doing this. Like, I, I should be able to just stop thinking about things. I'm like, uh, that's not quite how but it works. But if you could, you, know? you would. And Absolutely. you have it. So Absolutely. <laughs> there's other you're stuff right. going on. <laughs> yes, you're right. 100%. And so you mentioned um, uh, assessments. Uh, you, you, are, you are studying to do a specific type of assessment. Can you elaborate on that and tell us a little bit about what that means and what it entails? Sure. So to become a qualified medical examiner, you have to be a doctor. So either chiropractor, some specialty in medicine. So a DO or an MD, a psychiatrist, um, I believe a podiatrist can be one. Acupuncture, I think, is another one. And you are doing evaluations for people that have workman's compensation cases. So we're just determining the level of impairment to help determine what level of disability they have. So are they going to be on temporary disability and be limited to what functions they can perform at work? Or are they not able to work at all? And they're going to be placed on permanent disability. Um, So yeah, it's a brief assessment. I'm going to work for a small little agency who does most of the footwork and stuff for me. So I'm literally going to just be showing up doing the assessment. And then I have 30 days to write the report. And then that goes to the the two attorneys and workman's comp board. And then they decide what the client's you know outcome is going to be for whatever claim it is that they have so yeah it's not my job to determine if they actually got hurt or not if they're lying about what happened or not it's really just assessing for their um really it comes down to just yeah the impairment and how are they able to perform their activities of daily living if is it is it impairing them to the point where their day-to-day activities are impaired, then that's when they determine that, yeah, they are considered disabled and they're not able to work at the full capacity that they were before. Nice. And and, mm-hmm. and so it sounds like you're limiting your your overhead by working with this company. Like you're really just showing up and kind of doing the assessments. Mm-hmm. That's something along the business side that we typically don't learn in, in yeah. graduate school for us. Um, but very important too. speaking of like graduate school. So can, can you tell us a little bit about what your experience was like and to become the person that you are in your career? What did it take for you to get from point A to point Z now where you're at? Z, seriously. (laughs) Uh, Long journey. So I went straight through with no breaks because I know myself and I knew that if I stopped, I know I would have gone back, but I was telling myself at the time, if you stop, you're not going to go back. So just keep Mm -hmm. going and just get it over with. So I graduated from high school, went straight to a four year. And that's actually one of my things I will say, because I do educate people on this now, because I honestly didn't know. I had the idea that I didn't want to go to a community college because I didn't know anybody who had actually finished in like two or three years. Most of the people I knew either like stopped going altogether or were there for like five, 10 years. And at that time, I I really was like, I can't go and get stuck there and then not finish because I have so much education ahead of me. Um, But now that I know what I know, that's probably the one thing I would have done differently. I wish I would have went to a community college and utilized all the resources there, which I didn't learn until I actually worked at one. And so now I know like there's special programs and, you know, ways to get a better registration date and all of that. So when I give my story, I share that with people so that they can at least go and try it out first and, you know, exhaust all those resources and save yourself a ton of money. Cause I didn't, I went to a four-year private school. I went to Azusa Pacific, which was great. I mean, I, 
had a pretty good experience there. It was a small campus. I dormed for my first year, so I felt like I went away from for school, but I was really only like a 25 minute drive from home. Um, all my classes only had like 12 students. So for me, it really helped being a first generation college student, knowing that my teachers knew if I wasn't in class. <laughs> like I wasn't a number. My teachers knew my face. My teachers knew my name. If right. I decided not to go to school, like they knew. So I couldn't see there. myself going yeah. to like a UCLA and being in a classroom of hundreds. Mm -hmm. Like that would have been hard for me. Um, yeah. I'm big on like feeling like I belong and knowing, you know, and so a big school, I think I would have just got lost. And again, why the community college, I was hesitant to do yeah. that. Now, there's so many things that you say that are so interesting to me, like um, um, deciding what school you want to go to, whether it be two year or four year. Now, can you explain the difference between you going straight to a four year or deciding to go to a two year and what you see the differences are? Sure. So, yeah, a two year um, for a lot of people, like if you're commuting, if you're working full time and you're not able to go to school full time, a two year is a great option because there's more flexible schedules. Um, you can go part time and just commute to and from your class, plan your classes around your work schedule. But the, the big difference is the cost. Like it's a huge cost. I'm not sure what it is now. I, ha I haven't worked at the community college in a couple of years, but I believe it was at like $48 a unit mm. versus, so you would pay what? A couple hundred dollars for your semester where I was paying like 13,000, <laughs> 15,000 a semester, which hurts my heart to say out loud, but it's- To, to go to the four year, you mean? Yes, to go to the oh, four God. year. Yes, yes, but yes. yeah. So so the four year is much more expensive than going to the junior college and you get the same amount of credits and the same exactly. areas that you need. Yes. Yeah. And the big difference is your first two years is all general education anyways. Everybody is going to different schools with different curriculums, different programs. So the idea behind general education is to kind of like streamline it a little bit so that people are getting some of the same core coursework before they go on to their career or their major of choice. Mm -hmm. And so the two year is just getting that done. You have to take math and English and science and you know all of those classes. So why pay 10 times more at a four year like I did when you can go to the two year and pay way less, but you're getting the same classes, the same, you know, yeah. and then you can choose from them too. I don't think I really had much of a choice at my school. It was really more like, here's your schedule like i had maybe one or two courses that i got to choose from but at the community college there's like such a wide range of choices so even science if you're not that big on science there's like 10 different types of science classes you can choose from so i think that benefits some people too um but yeah it's really just the general education that's what you're doing those first two years so me going to the four-year and deciding to get the four-year degree over the two-year degree it really was like the cost it was a yeah. big cost difference, but I was taking the same courses that my friends were taking at, you know, Citrus College, which was right next door to where I was going. Yeah. Interesting spin on that. And I've heard that argument before, and it seems like it makes much more sense to be, um, um, I guess, financially aware of what you're getting yourself into when you're exactly. thinking about education yeah. and how far you want to go. For me, um, I started out at a junior college, so I worked my way up and I, uh, um, it seems like at every stop I got a degree, but I kept going to where I finished and I, and I ended up getting to the point where um, if I would have went same, if I would have went straight through, it would have been a lot more, like you say, and then I have the same exact outcome by getting my doctorate in clinical psychology. So it makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, would you mind you sharing how long it took you to finish your? Oh, yeah, I could share with you if you like. No, uh, I started off at the junior college and so it took me like 
three years, but I was I was also See, an athlete that's not too. bad though. Right. That's I was an athlete, bad. and so that's what that's what helped me because they 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 kind of push you to get through because they want you to go on and continue to yes. continue to play. But like like you said, it, there's a lot of individuals that kind of um, fall into that 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 trap yes. of uh, going to junior college and staying there for many many years where mm-hmm. um, uh, they probably shouldn't be doing that. So I was yes. lucky in that sense. So, and, and and two, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, so it took me a little bit longer to kind of figure that out. So I was yes. kind of going through the motions during some of those years, but it, it, it totally worked out for me. Um, yeah, that's another good point too. If you don't know yet what you want to do, why go to a four-year and spend all this money when you can stay at a community college and pay less money to explore different types of courses and see if that helps you narrow it down? Yes, absolutely. But, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And another and thing another for me thing, too. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, another thing now that I know from working there, what I would say is that like I had no idea that you could go to a community college without a high school diploma. So um, you can be in high school. Like we used to have 10th graders come and in the summer they would take one or two courses. So when they graduated from high school, they came in and they were ahead. Or um, if you're behind, instead of coming in as a freshman, you know, and starting in like lower level math and English, you're already at college level math and English because you took the lower levels while you were in high school to catch up. So that's like a huge tip that I wish I knew to help me, you know, so those, those high school students definitely uh, came in the game a few steps ahead of the ones that didn't attend early. That also makes mm-hmm. sense, too. So um, uh, one gym there is going and getting a couple classes under your belt prior to actually going in and graduating and moving yes. on to the junior college. That makes sense, too. Um, I was not aware of that either. So that that's good information. How do you feel about online learning myself um i went to capella university so my program my doctor program was an 80 20 program meaning 80 mm-hmm. percent of uh, my coursework was online and 20 percent of it was in person and capella university is in minnesota i was a resident of um, nevada at the time so i had to do a lot of traveling but it made sense for me because i was a more seasoned student i had already had a family and children and things like that when i decided to um, get my doctorate um of course this was a probably 10 years ago now I don't want to date myself but back then it just wasn't normal to go online and it was yes. pretty much shunned upon really to be honest and, and and now it's a little bit different especially with the environment that we're in it's more acceptable yeah. to do the training online how, how do you feel about online learning yeah so when I taught um, at the master and doctorate level, our courses were blended. They were hybrid. My doctorate program was also almost like a hybrid. I used to go to school every other weekend. And so the weekends we didn't have school, we had online coursework that we had to complete. Um, honestly, I think a lot of people believe that online is easier, but in my opinion, it's harder (laughs) because you have to be more disciplined to get your online stuff done. Because if, you don't like you have your deadline and you're not physically going to class it's up to you to decide and make time honestly it's harder for me to engage online i need like the inner action face to face that's easier for me so um but yeah it's i think the only thing that makes people frown upon online is that there are programs like we would have students that would come to us there's people and programs that reach out to online programs and will get students to pay them to do their work is what it is like they'll write their papers for you they'll do your discussion questions so i think that's probably the only issue with online is finding ways to verify that you're the actual person that's completing your assignments 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I think video conference is a way to address that, like having a set time where either you're recording yourself talking or something so that you're turning in the assignments and then your professor knows, okay, he knows what he's talking about. They know what they're talking about. She knows, you know, and they're engaging in the coursework and not just submitting the stuff online and somebody else could be doing it for them. Yeah. But um, good, good point. Good point. I yeah, never really thought about that it that way, but, mm-hmm. but absolutely. Um, and so it's, it, is it, do you find that it's more like standard to, or acceptable in, in, in the field of psychology that individuals are coming out of hybrid programs rather than brick yes. and mortar? A lot, a lot of them now, especially now with COVID and everything, I feel like that's really going to shift. Mm-hmm. Um, it's helping people to look at things differently. Like why pay lease, lease a space for so much money when we can, you know, meet online virtually at the same day and time or yes. you know, give people a time frame when they can come on. Yeah, I do see a lot of programs have either like a blended or hybrid type system or there still are a lot of schools like university of phoenix or other certain programs that are totally online and it works it you know people get their stuff done and i think it's more like you said for the people that have kids or families or you know working full-time and trying to go to school that's hard when you're trying to do both like and that was another big thing for me i was blessed with having a great supervisor at my job when i was was an undergrad that she always worked with my school schedule because most of my classes were during the day. So that was a big difference. Like there's not a lot of evening classes at a private school during, you know, your undergrad. It was like, here's our schedule. You pick what days and times, but they were all during the day, mostly in the morning. So I used to go to school first, get my classes done and then go to work. Yeah. And then it all flipped when I got my master's. Then the master's was the opposite. All my courses were in the evening. So I used to work earlier. They found a job for me. They made me the music teacher and the cook. So I got to go to work at 6.30 in the morning and she would always work with my schedule. So I stayed at my little job up until the middle of my master's program. Um, And the same thing, I didn't know, which is weird. I knew this for my undergrad that you could stop and get like an associate's degree first and then go to the four year, or you could just choose to go to the four year and get it done. But I don't know back then it didn't click to me that I could do that with my doctor as well. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't sure. I thought like you had to specialize in something or I, I thought you had to figure it all out before you went. So I didn't want to go into a four or six year like doctorate program because I still wasn't really sure. So I stopped and got my master's first, but I really didn't do anything in psychology with it because I knew I wasn't going to become an MFT or LPCC or CSW because in my mind, the license is psychologist. So why am I going to go do hours and get coursework in that, you know, do internship and stuff in that when I'm going for the other degree. Um, but now looking back, hindsight's 2020, that was how I got the job as the counselor and the professor, because I was in a master's program, I was able to teach adjunct there. And so that's kind of what got me into, so that was a little segue, but it took me into a different field that I actually really liked and got to get paid way more than what I was doing. I was having like two or three jobs trying to go to school. And so once I became a college counselor at a community college, I was making enough to work at that one job two days a week and do my full-time internship to get me ready for licensure. So it all ended up working out, but. All that you're talking about are things to think about when our students are considering what field they want to go into and how they want to get into that that field that they decide. So there's a variety of different 
avenues. You just kind of have to pick the one that works best for you. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things that I, I would point out here too is, it seems like uh, this generation of, of students are uh, more fiscally responsible. What I mean by that is is yeah. identifying the, the financial part of mm-hmm. schooling. Um, and then not only what you're paying out for the schooling, but what comes after that. So when you're going into a career, identify, well, how much can I make in this career in order yes. to live the lifestyle that I want to, right? So Dr. Sanchez, this is the million dollar question that I'm always asked is how much does a clinical psychologist make? Um, and you have a variety of different experiences. So yes. I'm sure our audience is curious to know, like, what does a professor make? How much can I make in my own private practice? How much can I make at a behavioral health uh, facility or agency? And then lastly, mm-hmm. your assessment piece. It seems like that's an additional part of training yes. and learning that's going to bring you a separate uh, form of, of, of income. Can, can yes. you share like the base levels across the board of what sure. our students or individuals in our audience would be able to expect if they want to go into mm-hmm. a field? Like yeah, so for psychology, mm-hmm. that's what's so great about psychology. There's such a wide range. I believe the range is from about 50 to 130,000 is like the pay range for a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Now, that's just graduating with a doctorate degree in psychology. So a lot of places, once you're licensed, then you'll get paid a little bit more. Um, or depending on like how many units you have, like at the community college, they went based off units. So when I had more units, once I finished my doctorate, then I got paid a little bit more but I'm pretty open. So I'll share like, and it depends where you work. Like I was working at a place as a teacher, you know, with the same degree, but not getting paid very much because the place I was working was like a daycare for kids. So most people there had a degree in child development. And so that's not what my degree was in. I wasn't even certified in that. I worked in the school age class where I didn't need that qualification. But then I went to the private, I'm sorry, the uh, community college level and being a professor and an adjunct there, Wow, it was a big jump. I remember, I think I was making like $15 an hour and this was years ago, so it's probably more now. And I remember once I got my master, no. Yeah, once I got my master's degree, it was like, okay, you wanna be adjunct. And it went from like $15 to like $47 an hour or something. Like it was a huge jump just with that one piece of paper I got in those two years. Mm -hmm. And so- So a huge jump after you got a different degree. After I got my degree, yeah. So from the bachelor's level to master's level, Got was it. a big, okay. big, big Huge pay difference. raise for Same me. job, but being Same type, a of job. Type, type of job. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. but I went from being a counselor apprentice to uh, adjunct counselor. Oh, okay. And then after that, I became like a director. So then they just like start adding pay, like little stipends, depending on what your role is. Mm-hmm. But teaching even, I think teaching was even more. I want to say it was like $70 an hour or something. And so if you're teaching a couple classes... So that was always like my my income. I would have counseling part-time and teaching part-time. And I would say, I don't know, um, I'm trying to remember. I mean, it was enough to live off of, to work part-time. So wow. it was probably like 50,000, 60,000 around there, I would say. Um, but that was having two part-time jobs. So then the other downside is like, you don't have insurance, but that's a whole other conversation. And now, then how teaching, many, yeah. go ahead. How many hours does a professor like typically work throughout the week? It's not like a, a 40 hour week uh, no. work, work week, is it? So my schedule, I would be a counselor for 10 hours. So I would work like two days, like five-ish hours a day. And then I would teach in between that. So either like in the morning before I started counseling or in the middle, like they would work my schedule that way. 
And I would usually teach like two classes. And so they were like an hour and a half twice a week. So like three to six hours. But then on top of that, you're like preparing for your class, you're grading papers, you're responding to students. Um, so I'd say maybe like about 20 hours a week, 15 to 20 hours a week once you count everything in. Okay. And, mm-hmm. and, and so, so once you stop doing that, you transition to the, the behavioral health in Los Angeles, correct? No. Then I went to a private university and I became okay. an administrator and I started teaching graduate level courses. Um, and at this private school, we weren't paid as much. I want to say maybe... 70,000 ish. Was that because you're at a private school and they could pay I different scales? I think so. Scales? Private okay. school and I wasn't licensed. So that maybe had something to do with it too. Um, but that's on the higher end for not being licensed as a psychologist. Cause I can say, I can share, cause this is all public with the County, Los Angeles County DMH. Um, I believe the pay range for a psychologist is like 65 to 85,000. And then once you're licensed, that jumps to 95 to like 125 or something and then after that is only higher if you're a supervisor wow and becoming Uh, licensed means you you pass all your tests and and yours yes so to become a licensed psychologist yeah you need the doctorate degree in psychology or in um you could have a doctorate in education as well so phd psyd edd and you have to do um 3000 hours to get licensed and you have to pass two exams, a law and ethics exam, and then the big, the EPPP, the professional practice in psychology examination. And I believe they're adding stuff to it now. So this like is an interview, I had right? to like do. Like an interface interview? Huh? Like an interface yes. interview? Yes. Yeah, they're going to add that. I know they're talking about adding like another exam or something. So I'm not sure what the process is going to be after this, but that's what I had to do. So 3,000 hours, the doctorate degree passing both exams and then to keep your license active, you have to do continuing education units every two years to keep your license active. And, and so you, you seen a jump in your pay once you became licensed, even as a professor? Um, I was, and so then I left that job, the school I worked at actually closed down. Um, and mm-hmm. I left right before that. And that's when I started working for Los Angeles County. And at the county, yes, I got bumped up because I became licensed. Nice. So important to go get that license. And the license also yes. allows you to practice independently. You no longer yes. have to be working underneath it, someone else. You can actually yes. be your own psychologist to do a variety yeah. of different things once you get licensed. So, exactly. Um, but yeah, I've worked everywhere. Recommend. I've worked in education. I've worked in the prisons teaching. I've worked in a locked psychiatric hospital. I've worked in public um, mental health, mm-hmm. community-based mental health. So I've worked in a private practice, a little bit of every thing with psychology the only thing i haven't done is like courts the courts are like you know law enforcement because you can go really there's so many options once you become a psychologist Mm -hmm. you can do so much and that's what i think a lot of people don't really know and i didn't know that i thought like oh i have to specialize and decide if i want to be like a neuropsychologist or this kind of but no it really just comes down to getting more education and then getting some kind of like internship or additional training Mm-hmm. to become something else like more specialized right. That's- and getting the experience too yes and, and, and so i do a lot of supervision in my practice and uh, i work for a dds as well Cal- for the state of california and i do a lot of supervision and one thing i hear quite a bit is um the students coming in want to do these assessments like the ones you're mentioning 
So the uh, mental, uh, the, the medical um, uh, assessment qualified that you're going through. Qualified medical examiner. Qualified medical examiner. QME. In order, to, mm -hmm. in order to do that, there's more education, and then I would imagine there's a, a bump in pay there too. And so, what what can you expect um, if you're going to go that route, right? To yes. get paid per assessment. So yes, to become the QME, you have to be a licensed psychologist, and you have to practice in a private practice setting or have like actual clients. I think it's like a third of your time. So you have to be like constantly seeing clients unless you're retired or a professor, then they still okay. allow you to be a QME. Um, and because I'm going to work for somebody, I'm going to be getting a percentage. So it's a 60, 40 split. Okay. And depending on the type of assessment and how long you're billing and everything, um, it's going to depend. But from a friend that I know that's already doing it, every assessment it's ranged for her I want to say between like four thousand and eight thousand for an assessment. Per assessment, wow. Yes. yes. And what does the education piece or the requirements to be able to be one of these assessors? What what is it? You have to study and take another exam, and okay. then so you're, take a report so, writing course. Oh, okay. So mm -hmm. a few courses, a, a, a major exam. Then yes. once you pass that exam, you have that title, then you're allowed to do these assessments. Yes. That's but the benefit for me, since I'm just starting working for someone else. They're putting you on the QME panels. They're putting you out there and doing all of that stuff for you, keeping track of all the deadlines and paperwork. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I get to just show up. And so they nice. may they get that that 40 percent for doing all of that. Nice. And I'm still making a decent amount of money just doing the assessment and writing up the report. Now, is there a total number of hours that you have to do to be able to qualify to sit for the exam? Or is it whenever you're ready to take this exam, you just take it? Yep. They have it twice mm -hmm. a year in April and October. Nice. So you just schedule it like you did your licensing exam. You pay the fees, take the exam. And then once you pass, you have to take that 12 hour report writing course. And then once you take the pass that, you pay your fees and then you're a qualified medical examiner. Awesome. Well, good luck with that, Dr. Sanchez. Thank you. And so if our audience has questions or, or, or comments or anything like that, and they want to reach out to you, how can we get a hold of you? Sure. So I am on social media, on Instagram. You can find me under speak the secret and I could send it to you because it's like speak underscore that. <laughs> so you can write it out on like the show notes, but speak Absolutely. the secret on Instagram or Dr. Elise Sanchez. It's probably easier to find me that way. Um, and then on Facebook, also speak the secret podcast and I'm on Twitter, but not too active. Might actually get rid of it soon. <laughs> Just okay. one more platform to think of. Yeah. Um, but yeah, mostly Instagram, Facebook's probably the easiest or info at speak the secret dot co. That's awesome. my email. Mm -hmm. So all this information definitely will be linked in the show notes. So if you want to get a hold of uh, Dr. Sanchez, you can do so. Anything else, Dr. Sanchez, that you want to mention to our audience that we, we haven't covered uh, in our interview so far? Um, I think the only thing is like how important it is to find a mentor or some kind of guide or support. So that's why I think yes. I've stayed in like the coaching consulting type for field because I miss teaching. Cause I've always loved like inspiring and guiding and helping people figure out what they want to do. Because I was a first generation student. I had to figure it all out on my own and I didn't have anybody. So I had to connect with my professors. Like I was like, you're doing what I want to do. Like, how do I get there? Mm -hmm. And that was how I did it. And so it's just really important to ask for help. Like, I don't know where this idea came from that we should just know all this and we should just be able to do it by ourselves because nobody does it on their own. They've had some team, some support, some guide or mentor that helped them. And 
And that's it. And the only way to know is to talk and to ask questions because you don't really know what you don't know until you start talking to somebody and then you learn, oh, I didn't even know that existed or I didn't know I could do that. So just talking, sharing your hopes and your dreams, talking them out loud. If the people you surround yourself with don't believe in you or don't support you, find new people, find other people that are different, that are doing what you want to be doing. Like I wanted to start a podcast and everybody was like, how are you going to make money? What do you, you know, everybody was all negative. And I'm like, I don't care. This is my passion project. This is what I want to do. So then I started connecting with people that were doing what I wanted to do. And then it just seems easier because you meet people that you know are already doing it. So that's it. Like you can do anything you want to do. You just have to be willing to put in the time, the effort, the energy and the work, and then find people to help guide you to get there. Good gym there. Surround yourself with people that are doing things that you're doing and yes. moving in the same direction as you are and pushing you to be successful. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So Dr. Sanchez, we do appreciate you taking the time out today to um, bless yes. our our Mental Health Monthly community with their uh, uh, abundance of gyms. And we do appreciate you. And I'm sure your community appreciates the work that you do. So keep up the good work. And um, uh, like myself, you you seem to be very open to sharing information with uh, our young students that are interested in psychology. Mm -hmm. So the more of you that we have, (laughs) the better as far as educating. need more people. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. More people. This field is never going to go out of business. So absolutely. I agree with you 100%. More psychologists, more clinicians, (laughs) especially after COVID. It's going to just open more doors, I think. So yeah, I'm happy. I'm open. Just feel free to reach out. Well, thank you, Dr. Sanchez. We do appreciate it. Take care. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Mental Health Monthly, where we discuss anything psychology related, more specifically, diagnosis, treatment, and resources. For more information, check us out on the web, alphabetabehavioral.com, and we'll see you on the next one.